You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. Amen. Genesis 47. Does everybody have it? Yeah. Um, I'm going to be in the uh, NIV today, and uh, if you're new here, we're usually trucking through whole books of the Bible, left to right, and uh, we are almost closing up this sermon and next sermon, this Sunday and next Sunday, we're going to be closing up Genesis chapter 50 all the way, all, all together. So we're in Genesis 47, uh, and if you have it there, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll continue on. Uh, we've been in this series, this last little segment, um, we close up the story of Joseph, and really, I think the last five chapters deserve its own attention The last five chapters are really the epilogue, like the white words on a black screen at the end of a movie, that tell us what the story means in the first place. And it's the story of the family getting settled down in Egypt. And they're realizing that the location that they live in and the era and the time that they live in is never on accident. They are being planted there. They're not just being forgotten there. And just according to the prophecy that was given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, they would be there for 400 years for a purpose. Uh, Not just to survive, but to thrive in the middle of enemies. And so I believe in the last couple pages of this chapter is a vision for church. Um, we do not have the multiple choice opportunity to have a quarantine from the world. We don't have the opportunity to live uh, not in the world, you know, and not of the world. Uh, We are uh, just like those people, uh, these people, our people have been planted in the middle of Greenville, planted in the middle of a city, planted in the middle of um, spiritual darkness and enemies. Uh, And whether you're awake to that or not, um, we are becoming day by day awakened to the reality that this world is much bigger than we think that it is, and we have less control than we think that we do. And we're realizing and understanding that God, if he has planted us, uh, then we are to thrive right here in the the middle of this city. And so um, when I was uh, growing up, there was a kid down the street who had it all, the kid that has everything. You couldn't really get anything for his birthday because he'd always get it first, you know. His name was Daniel Drapkin, and uh, this one's not on YouTube, so I don't have to give him a shout-out. But he was a good friend of mine, Daniel Drapkin, and he was the kid that always had the first thing. You remember that? The kid that always had the first Nintendo? Can you go back with me? The kid that had the first NES with that orange gun, and he shot the duck, and you're like, how did he shoot the duck? And it died, and it fell down on the screen. That doesn't make any sense. He had the Ninja Turtles game. That thing was like abuse, man. The adults, whoever made that Ninja Turtles game was impossible to beat. He was the first one that ever had that. Uh, He was the first one to show me uh, Batman, the Michael Keaton Batman. He was like, you'll never believe this. There's this Batman. He's not gray. He's not blue. He's just all black and he's mean. And I watched that movie and I was terrified for like, you know, three weeks. I just had a nightmare about, you know, Joker and Michael Keaton and and Jack Nicholson and all that kind of thing. Um, he, he had a very different kind of household. Do you ever go over to somebody's house and the way that they did things was just different? Daniel's house, you could pick whatever you wanted. Uh, if I told my mom I wanted lasagna instead of pizza, she would just look at me like I was crazy. Daniel called his dad by his first name, Peter. He'd be like, Peter, I don't like lasagna, I want pizza. And they would ding it up into a little microwave and give him a little like trays and you would sit there and like watch TV, eating dinner. I'm like, this is just crazy. Like, feel like we need to have a parenting seminar. This is great right now. You know what I mean? Daniel made like $25 a week, like more than my mom made probably for his allowance. Uh, we could spar with uh, Daniel's dad downstairs. Peter, we'd just beat him up. You know, we would have, he was like a good athlete, so it didn't really hurt him, but we'd have like the headgear and stuff and like spin kick him like three ninjas. And uh, it was like a whole different world. It's a fun thing, right? When you're a kid, you kind of like go into these other worlds and the parents don't know enough to kind of tone it down. They don't know enough to hide the secrets. Like when we're adults and we have adults over, we know that adults are watching us and judging us, but we don't think that the kids see us, but they do. And they're observing you, right? And so you go over there and you know mom's in charge. You're like, oh, I didn't realize that. Like mom's, you know, mom's in charge. Mom's, you know, telling everybody what to do around here, you know? Uh, you'll, you'll literally... Um, pack your little bag and you'll get your little sleeping bag and your pillow and you'll go out the door and you'll go into another house and you might as well have gone into a different world. 
I mean, it's like the same zip code in the same house, and y'all have the same amount of odyssey, and y'all have the same job and go to the same school, but it's a completely different world. If you've been to a different world before in a different kid's house, right? You have gone to houses before as a kid, and you recognize you, you're in there for five minutes, and you're like, there is yelling in this house every day. You've been in a house like this. Have you been in a house before where you go in and you realize, man, like, it's so quiet in this house. Nobody's talking. I don't think anybody is connected at all. Nobody is really communicating. And it's, it's as a kid, you just kind of have this sixth sense that when you go in, there's a, a different world. You're in the same neighborhood, next door neighbors with the same job and the same situation, the same economy, but in two different worlds. So the passage we're looking at in Genesis 47 is the story of two different worlds. Uh, this little family, uh, Israel is what it's going to be called. This nation is just 12 starving brothers. I mean, we need to call it what it is. Call a spade a spade. These guys are barely on the thin, you know, surviving by the skin of their teeth. And they're planted right in the middle of this big nation. And they're planted right next door. They're planted in this place called Goshen, which has the fat of the land and has plenty of surplus. And even the famine has enough food, you know. But it's the same place, the same location, the same time, and the same famine, but two separate worlds, all because of the thing that God pronounced to Abraham so long ago. His promise is so faithful and who he says he is, who he is. And every word that proceeds from the mouth of God is just as he says that it is. And he had promised Abraham, no matter where he went, his family would go. Even in famine and even in Egypt, he would be blessed. And so right next door, you have a family that's planted in the middle of enemies. And one one on the outside is all cursed and there's famine and, and, and curse and sword and all these problems. But right in the middle of that, in the heart of that, God has planted a family that that's blessed. Isn't that weird? We talked about this last week, but like when you see a little bird, you know, birds don't swim in the ocean. If you went down there scuba diving and saw a bird swimming in the ocean, that'd be really weird. And if you saw a fish that was just like sitting in a nest, that'd be really strange and peculiar. And to see a family planted in the middle of Egypt while all of Egypt is starving, thriving and abounding in the middle of this, it would only have one conclusion. And that would have to be that Pharaoh's not king. That the ones in charge are not really in charge. That actually God is in charge of those and in charge and the things that we think are out of control are actually in control with God, especially the things that we are out of control, that we think are out of control are actually in God's control. And so there's this family that's been planted right in the middle of Egypt and they're thriving. They're not just surviving, they're thriving. And what would that say except for the king that they serve is actually not just king of Israel, but the king of the nations all together. So here's we are in Genesis 47. If you have your Bible, we'll kind of walk through. So here it is. So it says, Joseph, he went and told Pharaoh, He says, my father and my brothers with their flocks um, are here with their flocks and the herds and everything they own. And they have come from the land of Canaan and now they're in Goshen. He chose five of his brothers and presented them before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh asked the brothers, what is your occupation? And the servants are shepherds. He says, the servants are shepherds. And they replied to Pharaoh, just as our fathers were, uh, they they also said to him, we have come to live here now for a while because the famine is severe in Canaan. And your servants' flocks have no pasture. So now please let your servants settle in Goshen. So Joseph has set these guys up really, really well. All of the wisdom and all the reputation that Joseph has earned for himself, or at least God has probably blessed him with, and Pharaoh has thought that he has earned, all of that blessing goes to the brothers. Just like Psalm 103 says that anybody in Christ receives blessings, receives the blessing of healing and the blessing of salvation, the blessing of freedom, the blessing of wisdom, all the things that Joseph has by solidarity travel to his brothers. And so Joseph goes before Pharaoh and says that everything that I have, I want them to get too. They're going to live in the fat of the land in the middle of famine. They're going to be full when everyone else is starving. This is the setup. But the setup is not just that they're going to be blessed. It's also that they're going to be separate. Look at verse three. Pharaoh asked the brothers, what is your occupation Your servants are shepherds, they replied to Pharaoh, just as our fathers were. 
Uh, it reminded me, I've talked about this last week, of uh, the Pink Panther I watched on Father's Day uh, when Pontan gets interviewed by uh, Clouseau and, and he asks him what his father was and his father, and he goes, farmers, or he goes, shepherds? Or no, excuse me, what am I doing? He goes, law enforcement? And he goes, what about your father? And he goes, law enforcement? And what about his father? And he goes, police? And he goes, what about his father? Law enforcement? And then he says, oh, what about uh, your great, great, great grandfather? And he says, farmers. And he goes, ah, so the little Pontan has come to me for to learn, is what uh, Clouseau says. So there's this long heritage of shepherding that goes in, and, and Joseph is drawing a line in the sand. You will not be professionals. You will not be uh, first and foremost. Um, uh, you will not be first and foremost slaves or servants or any other occupation within Pharaoh's kingdom. You will be shepherds because shepherds have to de- depend on God, and shepherds are trained in, and shepherds have to follow the voice. And so don't, never forget, whatever your occupation is, and even today, whatever your occupation is, where you find yourself on your nine to five, if you're uh, at home with kids, or if you're a teacher, or if you're a lawyer, or a doctor, we are first and foremost caretakers and shepherds of God's family. And so this is something that we'll never uh, forget, and they can never be intermingled because it will say in a moment that the shepherds are detested by Egyptians. So verse four says this, and they also said to him, we have come to live here for a while because the famine is severe in Canaan, and your servants' flocks have no pasture. So now let us uh, settle in Goshen. So Pharaoh says this to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you and the land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best part of the land. Let them live in Goshen. And if you know any among them with any special ability, put them in charge of my own livestock. Then it goes on in verse seven. So Joseph brings his father Jacob and presents him before Pharaoh. After Jacob blessed Pharaoh, Jacob asked him, how old are you? And Jacob says to Pharaoh, the years of my pilgrimage are 130 My years have been few and difficult, and they do not equal the years of the pilgrimage of my fathers. Then Jacob blesses Pharaoh and went out from his pasture. If you've been following along with this, Jacob has a really long story in the Bible, maybe one of the longest ones in the book of Genesis. And Jacob's story goes all the way from when he's a little rascal runt kid, and he steals his blessing. Remember that in the birthright from Esau? He runs away from home, finds himself asleep on a rock. God opens up heaven, and the angels ascend and descend on, on, on Jacob. And God tells Jacob that even when you run from home, I'm still with you. I'm the God that camps with you is what Jacob calls him. And I'm here to bless you and not to curse you. And you don't bring any blessing to yourself. I'm the one that blessed you. This was Jacob. But Jacob doesn't listen to, to any of that, or at least he doesn't repent to it. And he keeps on his own way. And he goes off and he gets, uh, he gets entangled up with a rascal Uncle Laban, Uncle Rico type of dude named Laban. And he wastes 20 years of his life. Do you remember this story? And so Laban promises uh, a wife in Rachel, the good-looking one. And so uh, while he's asleep, you know, on his wedding night, he swaps him out and gives him Leah instead. And so, uh, so, so Jacob, although he's blessed and has the birthright, and although God is blessing him and follows him and camps him wherever he is, he still finds himself entangled with the rascal Uncle Laban for 20 years. He wastes 20 years of his life. He comes home to try and own up to his past and he goes back to confront his brother Esau and he's terrified of his brother Esau because insult only adds to injury and absence doesn't always make the the heart grow fonder, especially for somebody that stole your your birthright. And so he goes back and he throws all of his wealth and all his possessions to try and get some forgiveness, some favor, some kindness from his brother. And none of that had mattered anything. And all those years were really wasted in the first place because Esau only forgave Jacob because of grace and because of mercy. And so the title of Jacob's book is accurate. His years, he says, are few and difficult. 130 years is quite a long time, but if you compare it next to 175 years like Abraham, he's kind of a spring chicken. So he says his years are few and difficult. And then in verse 10, this kind of perplexing scene happens within this palace that Jacob bows down and he blesses Pharaoh in his presence. I mean, think about this. Basically, Jacob is like Tom Hanks and Castaway. He's got some popped Wilson ball 
and basically nothing else in, in, in his life except for a little bit of faith and a little bit of grit. And he's got nothing but a few and difficult years behind him and his hair is, is tattered and his, and his clothes are, are all a mess and he's standing in front of the most pampered person that has ever you know, known the known world. You know, Pharaoh himself, who's getting waved by palm branches and fed grapes right into his mouth and he has the audacity to walk right into the Pharaoh's palace and blesses him. The one who has nothing stands before the one who has everything and blesses him. What does that mean? Well, it, means, it must mean this. You know, in the South, blessing means almost everything and nothing at the same time. If you notice that blessing is just something that people just pop off. You know, have a blessed day or, uh, oh, bless her heart. Oh, bless her heart. Bless it. You know, bless her. She thought she could sing on the choir and so bless her little heart with sweet tea and all that kind of stuff. We just pop off this word blessing as though it just basically means good vibes and good luck. You know, like that song is like, I'm too blessed to be stressed and like I got the sunshine beating on my chest or whatever it is that's going on. This summer is this blessing kind of means everything and nothing at the same time. It basically means good vibes and good luck. But if you think about the word blessing, when you think about the context of Genesis 1, that he made the world in seven days and blessed it, or if you think about the context of, of Genesis 12, and God blesses Abraham and says he's going to bless him to the nation and everything that that entails, and when you think about this moment where Jacob literally comes into the most pampered person of all of history and, and blesses him, it must mean that blessing means something more than material. It must mean that blessing is something that is less tangible than good days and good vibes only. It must mean if Jacob is blessed, that everything in those 120 years must uh, count for blessing. Whatever our definition is, whether we live in the South or in the North, then our dictionary for blessing needs to include being betrayed by brothers, losing a son for 20 years. Our definition of whatever blessing is when we ever read the Hebrew Bible or when we think about saying somebody is having a blessed day cannot eclipse, must include um, things like sleeping on a rock and being homeless. It must include, the blessing cannot be out, outside the scope and the, and the purview of, of, of coming back um, into a bittered relationship and a rivalry with her brother and seeking forgiveness, the blessing cannot be exclusive of that. If, if, if Jacob's life represents the blessing, then the blessing must be represented in his life, which is both few and difficult. Jacob has a few and difficult life, but still considers himself blessed. And the second conclusion has to be made within this perplexing relationship between the Pharaoh and Jacob right here in this little room is that for whatever Jacob has in his troubled life, it is greater than Pharaoh's pampered life. Whatever Jacob has in his nothingness must be better and greater than everything that Pharaoh has in his everythingness. So we are called to the carpet here about what we really mean by blessing because when Abraham uh, gets called and tapped on the shoulder by God, it is not to be cursed, it is to be blessed. But that definition of blessed cannot be co-opted by whatever definition we want. It has to be included by whatever it is we see in the few and difficult years. And so... It doesn't take just the scripture. It, it, it has been experienced in our life because you know people that have six-figure income and they are not blessed. You know people that have everything and really have nothing. You know people that, um, that are jealous that have you know, six-figure uh, incomes that are next to people with four-figure incomes and don't have and wish they had the thing that the person that has nothing has. You've been to mission trips, haven't you? Right? Where you go in there and your assumption coming into the beginning of the mission trip because they're poor and you're rich that you're here to bring them something. But when you leave, you're not quite sure you were the one that brought the blessing. Maybe they were the one that gave you the blessing in the first place. So what is the blessing really? I believe that that's what this passage is asking us. In the middle of a famine, you have a blessing family and a curse family. And the curse family happens to have everything. And the blessing family, at least at this point, has absolutely nothing. Is a nowhere country from no, from no place that has nothing and is nothing and has no name. And it comes before Pharaoh and blesses them. So what is blessing really? I believe 
But the answer lies in verse 12. Verse 11 says this, So Joseph settles his father and his brothers in Egypt and gave them property in the best part of the land. So blessing isn't having nothing and it's not having everything. It must be something else. It's having little and having much. Blessing must be something more than stuff. The district of Ramses is Pharaoh directed. Verse 12 says this, Joseph also provided his father and his brothers and all of his father's household with food, and get this one, according to the number of their children. Did you catch that little detail? How were they fed? These people that are living off the fat of the land, it's an anomaly, isn't it? The 12 starving brothers are going to become a great nation in the middle of Egypt are planted and they have no food to start with, but yet they're graced with food. And what is the quota that they're given the food for in the first place? Look at verse 12. With food according to the number of their children. Notice that it doesn't say that they are fed according to the number of hours worked. It's not fed according to the salary wage. It's not according to the economy. And it's not according to commission. That they are fed according to the number of children that they have. The blessing life is much different than the cursed life. I mean, they're right next door neighbors. You could have a, a blessed person and a, and a cursed person living in the same exact cul-de-sac with the same exact number of kids, with the same exact cars. One person could live in that cul-de-sac with blessing and the other one with a curse if only for verse 12 is the family that's been planted there being fed or are they being paid? Is the family that's being planted there being fed by a father or paid by a pharaoh? That's a huge difference, isn't it? To walk through Publix and to understand all the things that are given us could be given to us because we have a debit card in our back pocket and a fun Apple Pay watch thing that I just realized that you can just beep and just clock out, right? There could be a paradigm that I come in there and I go in to get BOGOs of uh, Blue Bell ice cream, which is my favorite ice cream, if you case you want to know, and I could walk out of that store believing I paid myself. I could. I could believe that I was paid according to my wage, I was paid according to my work, I was paid according to my status and my stature, or the blessing says I could believe this, that I was paid according to my need by my Father in heaven. When I was um, young, I would uh, spend all my summers at Grandma's house, and Grandma was about 65 years old, her name was Pat, and she almost became a nun, and then she had seven kids, so I don't know how that happened. But anyways, I'm glad that she didn't become a nun because I wouldn't have been alive. And so I would visit out there in Indiana. Indiana had a nice difference between a nice dry and humid summer. And uh, grandma used to get like these like just foot long like Disney popsicles. I don't know if they can even make these things anymore because uh, they probably have too much sugar in them. But they were like complete awesome sculptures of like Mickey and Minnie Mouse. And anyway, so I'm walking down memory lane. Uh, she would also go out and get us Lucky Charms for every morning. She wasn't rich, but she knew when, uh, when the cousins would come out, she'd get us Lucky Charms. And there used to be a little Jesus statue in the little corner. She was Catholic, and the little Jesus statue in the corner just brought me a comfort. I wasn't a religious person. I didn't believe in God back then. And I actually used to argue with the priest in Catholic school that I thought that people just made up religion to have somewhere, um, you know, to have peace about their death with. And so, anyways, I just had this comfort of, like, Jesus was in, in the corner, and I remember having... Um, a kind first impression, I guess, of, of what faith would mean. I mean, if he was anything like Grandma Pat, he must be really sweet, is what I remember. And I remember there used to be these little clocks that would tick late at night that would kind of like keep you up and put you to sleep at the same time. It's just a tick, 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 which is kind of how Joe and Pat ran the household. They were just nice and even keeled. And one of the things that they always did in their even keeled rhythm was they always prayed before dinner. Do you guys know the Catholic prayer before you pray, before you eat? This is what the Catholics pray. They pray, um, bless us, O Lord. And these I gifts, which you are about to receive, through Christ our bounty, amen. 
Isn't that a good pair? I, I didn't even know what bounty meant, but I love to say bounty. And uh, I always would raise my hand because there'd be seven cousins there and they all went to Catholic school and they all had first you know, communion and they were all baptized and I wasn't and I was like the heathen one, you know what I mean? So I was like, I'll pray, I'll pray because I just want to be included, you know? And I'd be like, blessed the Lord and these, I guess we're about to see from Christ about the I have no idea what it meant, but it was like so, so awesome and it made me feel comfortable. It was a way that I could belong. I grew up and I came to Christ at about 16 and I went to a youth group and I was discipled there and the guy was saying, you know, when you pray, you know, in the Protestant denomination, we don't like pray in a specific rote verse. We like pray just like talking to God. You know, it's not a good definition for prayers. Just talk to God. And so it'd be like, thank you God for this food and thank you for this hamburger. And I pray that you make this carrot stick into like, or make this Snickers bar into a carrot stick because it's silly that I'm asking you to bless me to eat this like, you know, steak burger or whatever it is that I'm eating. And uh, he would say to pray, you know, I remember my disciple would say to pray before meals and he'd say, especially to pray in public when you were in, at lunch. It was a way to, to just consecrate yourself and say, I, you know, I belong to God and this is who I am even in high school. And so that was a big move for me. I remember in high school and be like praying out loud in front of all these guys that didn't know I was a Christian. It's like, oh, what's Oliver doing? You know, that's like a big, big moment for me. And it was a way for me to belong. It was a way for me to show that I'm a Christian. But as the years have gone on, you know, like the, the, the meal prayers have changed and evolved. I don't know about you, but the meal prayers have, have, have become more sacred to me in a special way. Um, the meal prayers that I pray with my kids, I, I used to rush through them, you know, and just kind of get through them and just kind of like it's a thing that you have to do so that God's not angry at you. But instead of rushing through them, I found myself relishing the prayers. I get excited about my kids praying. I get excited about Alec. You can go on my Instagram and he'll be like, well, I'm glad that Gammy's here. I'm glad that Peepaw's here and I'm glad that my aunt's here and so forth. And I just love to hear my kids pray. I love to hear my kids thank the Father for food. I mean, isn't that what God told us to pray in his prayer? Give us this day our daily bread. This is what brings me joy, you know? And so, and, what, and non-believers, you know, when they come to the table, and I don't know if you, if you have this, when people come to your table, it's like, we'll even invite other people to pray that don't even believe in God because I think sometimes just even belonging before belief and having the words come out of your mouth has something spiritual to it. And all that being said, I've learned to not rush through meal prayers. I've learned to relish in them because what are we doing in the meal prayer other than declaring that we're fed and not paid? Other than declaring that although I have a debit card in my back pocket, and though I walk into Publix and I can buy, thank you, thankful to everything that, it, you know, that this country has provided in the ways that God has blessed me and my family, that ultimately none of that comes to me because of my payment. It all becomes I, because I have a father, because I have a father that feeds me. And so what is it that is ultimately at the crux of the blessing? How can somebody come with nothing in front of somebody that has everything and actually have the audacity to bless him other than the fact that the, that the blessing is not a thing, it's a who? Other than the blessing is about being fed rather than being paid. And isn't that the only difference and distinction between that neighbor and this one? Is that the one who has nothing comes before the one who has everything and has a leverage to bless the one that has everything because he realizes that what he has that the Pharaoh doesn't have is a father that feeds him. And so the line that we delineate between good and evil, between righteous and unrighteous, and between dark and light is not so much a line about where, you know, Hollywood versus, you know, a church building. And it's not necessarily a, a thing about what, you know, it's not necessarily what you have or what you don't have. It is about who. It is about the Father that feeds us. And so it is that, that the people of God are, are receiving this blessing. And the major thing that distinguishes the difference between the blessed family and the cursed nation is the Father that feeds them. So we read on in verse 13, it says, There was no food, however, in all of the region because the famine was severe, both in Egypt and in Canaan. They're experiencing this wasting away because of the famine. In verse 14, Joseph collects all the money that was to be found in Egypt and Canaan in payment for the grain they were buying. And he, and he brought it to Pharaoh's palace. And when the money of the people of Egypt and Canaan was gone, all of Egypt came before Joseph and said, give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? All our money is gone, says the Egyptians. 
obviously nobody in this room is old enough, but I was a history teacher. So I used to teach about the Great Depression. Do you guys know about the Great Depression in 1929? You know, our GDP plummeted by like 50% and we went into 25% unemployment rate. And even like, you know, the 2009 bubble crisis put us at about like a 10% unemployment, but the Great Depression was like a 25% employment. It was all these people without jobs. It was stadiums and stadiums and stadiums of people that were hungry. And so, you know, the story of the Great Depression, then FDR gets elected in 1932 and he starts something called the New Deal. Do you guys know what the New Deal is? New Deal is an economic program much like the, the, the program that Joseph is about to use in the kingdom of Egypt right here. And the New Deal is essentially this, is that market economies are great, and they're great to create entrepreneuring, and they're great to you know, build up free market and, and, and a spirit of entrepreneurialism and so on and so forth, but the problem with market economies is that the rich can get too rich and the poor can get too poor, and then there's a bubble between them. And when there's a bubble of credit between them, if it gets too big, what, what, what do we know about every bubble that ever gets made? Right? Every bubble gets popped and the whole thing crashes down. And so FDR, on, on that little rolled-out carpet, comes in and he centralizes the government more than ever before. Uh, he has a, a three-part program. You guys maybe have heard of re- reco- uh, Relief, Recovery, and Reform. You guys know this? So the New Deal program is this. We're going to put food in mouths, we're going to put jobs back to work, and we're going to put uh, reform in, in banking and, and in Social Security and even welfare in order to try and course-correct. And so there's a debate down there. And if you go down there in U.S. history, the best thing to do in teaching is have kids debate. And the debate is this. When FDR came in and he centralized the economy, did he save America or did he enslave it? Because reality is since the New Deal, the government has only gotten bigger, right? And since the New Deal, uh, debt has only ballooned and gotten bigger. And since the New Deal, welfare has only gotten bigger and the culture of welfare has only gotten bigger. And so the question becomes, did he save the economy or did he enslave it? Was he a villain or was he a hero? What do you think about FDR? Well, that's not as important as what you think about Joseph, because that's exactly what Joseph does in this passage, and I'll read along here, see if you can find the commonality. So it says in verse 16, bring your livestock, says Joseph, the wise king, the one who is able to interpret dreams, the one who is able to lead Egypt in salvation, says, hey, bring your livestock, and I will sell you food in exchange for your livestock. I mean, your animals are starving, and you're starving too, so you might as well give up your animals, because you can't afford them anyways, and they're all going to die. So give your animals to me, says Joseph. Verse 17, and when they brought their livestock to Joseph and he gave them food in exchange for their horses and their sheep and their goats and their cattle and their donkeys, he brought them through that year with food in exchange for all their livestock. So just pause right there. Now Pharaoh owns Park Place and Boardwalk. He owns the land and he owns the cattle. He owns it all, right? He centralized the economy in verse 18. And when that year was over, they came to him and followed the following year and he said, we cannot hide from our Lord the fact that since our money is gone, our livestock belongs to you. There is nothing left for our food except for our bodies and our land. Wow, the only thing left that is personally and individually owned is our bodies, our souls. What will we do when the economy is floundering? What will we do in the time of famine? Joseph has a policy, a bold policy that he advances. He says, why should we, or they say to him, why should we perish before your eyes? We in our land as well. By us, by us, by our bodies, says the Egyptians. Our land in exchange for food and we with our land will be in bondage to Pharaoh. This is what the people demand. Give us seed so that we may live and not die and that the land may not become desolate. And verse 20 says this, for Joseph, so Joseph bought all the land in Egypt to Pharaoh. The Egyptians, one and all, sold their fields because the famine was too severe for them and the land became Pharaoh's and Joseph reduced the people to servitude. From one end of Egypt to another, they were all slaves. Verse 22, however, he did not buy the land of the priests because he received a regular allotment from Pharaoh and had enough food from the allotment Pharaoh gave them. That is why he did not sell their land. Joseph said to the people, now that I have bought you your land today for Pharaoh, here is seed for you so that you can plant the ground. But when the crop comes in, give a fifth to Pharaoh, 20%. The other four fifths, the other 80%, you may keep as seed for the fields, as food for yourselves and your households and your children. Was Joseph a villain or a hero? Was he wise or was he cruel? 
Did he save Egypt or enslave Egypt? Well, you think about it. He gave a 20% tax. So I'll just tell you, if anyone runs for president and says we're going to have a 20% flat tax, we better take them up on it because that'd be a great tax rate for any modern civilization. So that's not cruel at all. That's actually really kind. 20% taxes is not that bad. Number two, he has a kind of a feudal system where the pharaoh is now responsible to feed the people, and so at least the people are fed, so he saves them. But you can't miss the fact that he just caused the people to not only sell their land and their property, but also themselves in slavery and in bondage to Pharaoh and centralizes Egypt for posterity, for, for, for ongoing. So did he save it or did he enslave it? So um, quick thought here, uh, because of course, like any great preacher, the answer is yes. <laughs> he, saves and he saves it by enslaving it. Um, we just did a Bible study downstairs in the book of Daniel. How many guys could quote a verse from beginning to end of the book of Daniel? Anybody have any takers? Capital, all the capital letter, all the way to the punctuation. Thing. Anybody can quote a full-on verse. How about uh, Ezekiel? How about Genesis? How about Numbers? Can anybody quote an entire you know, verse from some of these things? I think we know John 3.16. That's pretty good. And uh, I love when Julie always says in children's ministry that if you want to uh, see what God is like, then look at Jesus. And that's a, that's a verse. And so there are definitely verses that we have. But I would bet you that the majority of the people, if I asked you, could you quote an entire line from any Disney movie, I bet you we'd have a different result from beginning to end, you know? Like uh, one of my favorites is The Little Mermaid, you know, when she sings down there with that fork, she says, look at this stuff, isn't it neat? Wouldn't you think my collection's complete? Wouldn't you think I'm a girl? A girl who has everything. I've got gadgets. I mean, can we not just pull this out of thin air? I mean, we have these songs. How many people in here have never shopped at a non-Christian grocery store? How many people have only shopped at Christian Publix, if there is such a thing, right? Have never shopped at Big Lots or Bilo or have never shopped at Best Buy, right? How many people have never been fed by Pharaoh? How many people have never been fed by the world or the world's economy? How many people can truly say that they've only been educated from K-12 or from kindergarten all the way through K-12 only by Christian schools, only by Christian teachers? Or even beyond that, have only been coached by Christian coaches or been you know, led by, by Christian leaders? How many people can actually say that they are not being raised, essentially, and enslaved by the world? See, the essence of what's going on here is that Joseph is a typology of Jesus. And in so doing, he is both saving and enslaving the Egyptians at the same time. He is causing Pharaoh to be a glove in his hand. And he is raising and enslaving a nation that he will send Jesus to save. This is what Jesus is doing. He is handing over the Egyptians so that one day they might cry out to be saved. Because everyone that is given over to slavery is prepared for the work of salvation. When somebody is given over to slavery, they are ready to cry out for salvation. So here is the conundrum of the place that we live in here in Greenville, South Carolina. Because the option of quarantine is not possible. We live in and around and integrated with and we're taught by and fed by the things of the world. And so we can either live in denial or we can live in just pure on uh, assimilation, right? But the option of quarantine and non-involvement is not on the table. We live in a story where we have to live in a, in a reality where Pharaoh sits in places that feeds us, but he's not in charge. He sits in authority, but he's not in control. And I honor and submit to that authority, but ultimately, I'm not honoring and submitting to him or trusting in him. Ultimately, I'm trusting in the one who is over him. I'm trusting the one that puts him on like a glove. I'm trusting that God is in charge of those that are in charge, and he is in control of the things that seem out of control in this world. There is nothing outside of the scope of his control, and so it's all things. It's everything. It's not just Hollywood versus the church or, you know, a left versus the right. It's not you know, this thing or that thing, right? It's, it's, it's all things are being used under the sovereignty of God for his good work program. 
So take a look at this passage in Hosea, and it's, it's been a passage that has really just uh, been beautiful to me and I think meant a lot to me as somebody that's grown up outside of the church and see the Lord's hand in my, in my life putting Pharaoh on like a glove. It says in Hosea chapter 11 at the closing of this prophecy, Hosea says this, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son when he was singing Simba and the Lion King and watching Jurassic Park. I knew who he was before he knew who I was, and I was right there in the world, and the world was not too far away that I couldn't stretch out to save him. And so while he was in the world, he thought he was being fed by Pharaoh, but he was being fed by me. Verse two, but the more they were called, the more they went away from me, and they sacrificed to Baals, and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. If you realize that the exact things that we have purchased in our life that have become idols and traps in our life, God put the money in our pocketbook to buy them. That God is in charge of the surplus and the economy and the grain stores and all the cattle on a thousand hills. And even when we use his good world for evil, he still blesses us with it. He still gives it to us. Even when we don't even know the hand that's feeding us, he still feeds us. Even when we look the gift horse in the mouth. They sacrificed with all the good things that I gave them. They mistook the created things for the creator and they worshiped the created things and became blind by them is what Romans 1 says. And they took my gifts and they used them to sacrifice them to other gods. But it was I that was singing the little mermaid with them and taught them right from wrong. It was me the whole time. I was the one that taught them to walk. I was the one that taught them how to ride bikes. I was the one that was in their midst always. And I was the only one that ever gave them a good and perfect gift. And so this is the mixed bag of blessing that we live in, that God puts on our world like a glove and he is more sovereign than all the pharaohs we stand in front of and he's the one that is offering the blessings in the first place. Verse four, I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. Do you have a story like mine where Grandma Pat, you know, you shout out to Grandma Pat who's just sending you, you know, birthday cards with Jesus on them when uh, all you wanted was $5, you know. It's by cords of Grandma Pat's and, and Grandpa Joseph's and it's, and it's cords of your Sunday school teacher and it's cords of that non-believing history teacher that taught you and it's cords of even film and anything else that God has used under the sun. He uses all these things to teach you with cords of loving kindness, says Hosea. To them, I was like the one who lifts a little child to the cheek and bent down to feed them. It was always the father. It was never the Pharaoh. It was always the father that was feeding us. It was never the Pharaoh. And so the distance is slim but great between the blessing and the curse because cursed would be a person that's fed by God and thinks that Pharaoh was doing it in the first place. But blessed is the one that could look at Pharaoh and realize that Pharaoh has nothing to give them that God hasn't already given them. We are blessed not because of where we live or what we have. We are blessed because who feeds us. We have a father that feeds us and not a pharaoh that pays us. And that is the difference between a slave and a son. And so there it is. We live in this tenuous place of the very same world that raises us and slaves us. And that's the difficult thing, right? Because we're all just grasping for what it felt like, you know, to have that first kiss again. We're grasping for what it felt like in our dreams and our ambitions for what it felt like to go see that first movie or to go out to Disney World for the first time. And these idols that are fleeting, they were good things that we made God. And we forgot, we forgot, we thought in all of this that we paid ourselves and that Pharaoh bought us and owns us, but he has made us free because none of those Pharaohs ever fed us in the first place. It was always him. And so the created thing cannot be made the creator. And what does it mean to walk that tenuous line? It's not, you can't evacuate this world. You can't just get rid of all the bad things and only live in the good things because even good things can be made bad, can't they? If we worship them, unless we know that the father has fed us. And so this is the thing, this is the thing that, that Paul says. It's interesting. He says the Spirit, he says this in, in the book of 1 Timothy, it clearly says 
Then the later times, some will abandon their faith and follow deceiving spirits and taught, be taught by demons. So our antennas go up on a verse like that, like, oh, he's going to talk about demons and, and spooky things and, and diablos and little things like that, right? So, which is true. All, you know, God, Paul has a very interesting worldview. It is not a modernist worldview. He believes that the world is not all broken down by science. It's broken down by spirits. And he believes there is good and there is evil. And that evil does not come to just mess with us. It comes to kill and steal and destroy, right? But notice the category he has for what evil is, just in this verse. And there's lots of different ways to talk about evil. But verse 2 says this, Such teachings come through hypocritical liars. Those consciences have been seared with a hot iron. And then he he, he qualifies, verse 3. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe who know the truth. Did you see that? He just created a category of good and evil from dark and light. And the way, the way that he categorizes it is he says that one of the ways that evil and demonism projects itself is religion. Did you catch that? A faith that divides itself by saying, don't eat, don't touch, don't do, don't think, don't speak, don't look, hide, huddle, get away. Divide the thing by the what's and the where's because the, the curses all exist in those people and that party and that group and that side of the country or whatever and the blessing all lives in here. But God, but he's saying you can't run from cursing just by saying no to certain things because God made all things and you could make a good thing if you wanted to bad and a curse if you fail to thank God for it. So this is, this is essentially in this passage, the theology of demonology for, for, for Paul. Paul says that uh, thanklessness is, demon, is, de, is demonic. Verse four, listen to what he says. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received for thanksgiving. We want to create a line between blessing and curse, the good guys and the bad guys, because it's safer just to have these clean cut categories. But the problem is, you guys know it, there can be just as much demonology stuff that goes on in churches and gossip and slander and quarrel and ugliness and racism and just as much wisdom that you can learn outside because God is not in just the good and the bad. He is over all things in Roman 8, and he uses all things for good and glory for people like you and me according to his promise. And so we don't get to create these clear-cut categories all the time the way that we would like to between what is dark and light because Paul says what is light is anything that is a good and perfect gift that is received in thanksgiving, and you could make a good thing bad simply by treating it like it's a God. So what is the blessing really? You guys see this recently when uh, we, we thought there was an oil shortage. I almost didn't get to go on vacation because we thought there was no gas and the Lowe's parking lot was full up with minivans of people that are terrified there's going to be no more gas. And you know what was the true about the whole gas shortage? There wasn't one. Did you guys learn this? There was no gas shortage except for the gas shortage between our ears. If you believe there's a gas shortage, then there is one. If you believe there's a famine or the famine is the most substantial thing, then it is true, right? And so what is really going on with this whole with this whole curse thing. What is the blessing really? Is it just saying good vibes only? I think that the passage is saying that the distance between Israel and Egypt is but a mile, right? But it's vast and great in the spiritual reality because here's the curse. The curse is being fed by God thinking that it's Pharaoh. The Egyptians were fed by God too. The Egyptians had a plan too and God wanted to bless the nations and has a plan for the nations too. They just didn't know who to call on. And whether or not you believe there's a famine or, there, or you don't believe there is one is the only thing that really matters in the first place. Or as the great FDR said, and it might have been a prophecy potentially or something at least that sounds like the kingdom if we were having ears to hear it and eyes to see it, is there's nothing to fear but fear itself. If we believe that there's a shortage, then there is one. But if God has blessed us and has fed us, then all of our life has, us, has, has implications to it. The change, the blessing has implications. So the curse is being fed by God thinking it's Pharaoh, but the blessing is simply this. 
It's sitting down before your day, before your relationships, before your calendar, before your Sunday. And you are drawing a line in the sand because everything, John says, that it's the sway of this world to point us that Pharaoh's the one that feeds us. And, and, and don't miss this. The one that feeds you is the one that owns you. The one that feeds you is the one that owns you, right? And so all the sway is pushing us to believe that Pharaoh feeds us. But Paul is trying to infer on us. We have to believe this as the blessing family that no Pharaoh has ever fed us. Only God has fed us. It was only him that has led us through strands of human kindness. So I want to ask you an important question, but don't breeze by it. Because we bow our heads and we close our eyes before we eat you know, tacos and ice cream and everything else, the question that we ask that will make a world of difference between one neighborhood and to the next is this question, who feeds you really? Because we know the theological answer, but what's the practical answer? Not just like what's the, the doxology, what's the praxis of the thing? What, what does your Sunday really look like? Right? The blessing family, if there's a belief that time is blessed by God and to put something um, as the ordered um, control of time above and beyond God's Sabbath time, which he put in the rhythm from the beginning. In other words, if we live a life without restlessness, then we don't believe that God's in charge of time. We believe that we're in charge of time. And our busyness and our practice is constantly communicating something about who we believe really feeds us and who really is in charge of time. And, and, and it can give us a prescription of how we might spend our days down on here on this earth. If we're going from meeting to meeting and text message and message, text message and always says yes and we never say no, then it says something about who we believe is really in charge down here. Who really is sovereign? How is it that you're eating? When, when you're up right in the middle of the night like me, eating Haagen-Dazs and my BOGO, right, thing? It says something about who I believe is the Prince of Peace. I either have to believe that haagen is the Prince of Peace or Jesus, but I can't believe those two things at the same time. And I can turn a good thing even into a curse if I hold it above my Jesus. And so it's not just what we say, but the way that we practice, what is it that your calendar looks like, your bank account looks like? If you only work hard when you get credit for it, what does it say about who you're really working for? If you won't work, if it doesn't give you credit, if you, if you only work if it's visible and if, if you feel like it's meaningful, what does it really say about who is the Lord of the work? Who is the one that has a yoke that is fit for your shoulders? Who feeds you really is the distance between blessing and curse. This is what I believe that Genesis is showing. It's just a thin line between this family and this great nation. And they are fed off the fat of the land in Canaan and in Goshen while all these, all these other people are starving simply because of this one promise that he, they have a father while the other ones are enslaved by Pharaoh. They give up their land, they give up their animals, and finally they give up themselves until they're a slave. Who feeds you really? Who really gives you the debit card? So I just want to close on this question here uh, as an application. This uh, passage, I believe, in Genesis 45 to Genesis 50 gives us a vibrant picture of really not just their story, of our story. Well, what does it mean to be a resilient family that thrives in the middle of Greenville? How do we bless our neighbors? Because if we're not careful and we move, quick at too, move past it too quickly, you might think that blessing the neighbors just means to give a really great tip. And I think that giving great tips is a great idea. I think that's a great way to be, to be Genesis. But if you look, be generous. But if you look at this passage, it means so much more than that. Number one, I thought about this, that if we were to follow Jacob's model in terms of thriving in the middle of our enemies and blessing our neighbors, to really bless, to live in a blessing and to be a blessing, then it must mean to, be, to live a transparently troubled life. I've uh, been walking with my dad. My dad was here. He heard my first sermon two Sundays ago, my very first sermon that I, well, first sermon he ever heard. And he took notes on that little prayer card and I kept them. I bundled them, put them in my pocket and something that I always remember that he's right here. And he listens to his sermon he's, and, he, and he's not a Christian. And, and so we talk about lots of things. He has a, a WhatsApp thing and he sends me like 15 links a day and, uh, and he's got a lot of time. And unfortunately, I wish I had more time. It's like that old Cats in the Cradle song, I guess, right? So um, 
But something, something that I've come to, to, to see in, in my recent testimony with my dad, and I know that you have your relationships, long, ongoing evangelism is sometimes a day-by-day relationship, and sometimes it's a long 20- and 30-year relationship in terms of evangelism. But I have found that the glory of God is revealed in my life oftentimes more as I share my troubles more than I share my triumphs. I have found and have you found that oftentimes that God gets more glory out of me sharing my struggles, even with non-believers, than my strengths. And then in sharing with him some of the things that are going on currently in my life, literally the drama that's in my life that I would have been afraid to maybe share with him 10 years ago because it would make God look bad and it would make things look messed up and make things look befuddled, actually brings more prophecy into the conversation. And I see God open more doors, I don't know about you, by living a transparently troubled life before um, the people in my world. And so what does it look like for Jacob to unashamedly say, yeah, I got nothing and you have everything, but I have a blessing and I know that I'm going to live out of this lest I live in a lie that because you have something that I don't have that you actually have a blessing that I don't. I know that the blessing is not a where or a what, but it's a who. So what does it mean if the blessing is a who, then we don't have to hide our troubles and hide our blemishes and our weaknesses, but live before openly, transparently with people to live a troubled life before people that the blessing can shine its brightest when we're transparent. Number two, uh, and it comes out of a Corinthians verse that I'll read in a moment, but to love people, and then it says to hand them over. I've had to realize in ministry, you know, that Jesus, when he talks to the rich young ruler, that the rich young ruler walked away sad because the call of discipleship was too high for the rich young ruler, and Jesus let him walk. Jesus allows people to be handed over. This is a, this is a trembling Hard verse that we need to be prayerful about in our blessing of our neighbors and what we do with the waiters that cross our lives and the family members and the friends and the neighbors and the gym classes and the karates. But this guy gets caught for having incest in his family in 1 Corinthians 5. You remember this passage? And so Paul rebukes this church and says, if somebody is doing just debaucherous sin, then, he, then, then the command here is not to have fellowship. Verse 2, chapter 5, and you are proud, says Paul. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have Put that person out of fellowship, the man who has been doing this. Verse three, for my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. And one who is present with you is in that way. I have already passed judgment in the name of the Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. In verse four, so when you have assembled and I uh, am with you in spirit and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, it says, verse five, to hand the man over to Satan. This is the prescription that Paul gives in a New Testament church that the process of handing somebody over to slavery might actually be the best thing for them because slaves know to cry out for a savior. And so he says that in the practice of blessing neighbors, you have to let people walk sometimes. You have to allow God to be sovereign enough to run the discipleship plan that we pray and we sow and we disciple and we teach, but we don't, we don't bring increase. That God brings the, the increase and if God doesn't build the house, then the laborers labor in vain. And so whoever it is that you have in your life, one of the ways that you bless them is you let them walk. This is what Paul says. Hand this man over Satan. Listen to the end of the sentence though. For destruction of the flesh, it's not for harm. It's not for cursing that, Jacob, or that Joseph hands uh, the Egyptians over to Pharaoh because Pharaoh, he knows, is just a glove for God's sovereignty. And a man that gets handed over to slavery is prime pickings for reaching out for salvation. And so he says, let them get handed over for the destruction of the flesh because a person that sees Pharaoh for who he is can finally reach out for salvation so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. You have to let people walk. Blessing people means letting people walk. It means allowing for God to be sovereign enough that the four corners of a church wall is not the only discipling agent. It's not the only vehicle for how God gets people in the kingdom of heaven. People enter the kingdom of heaven, the narrow gate, impossibly. He says that the rich man enters impossibly. It's an impossible task that we cannot get our job description or chart 
flip-flopped in understanding and thinking that we do all this stuff. We have to allow him to walk. We have to allow his hands to be big enough. Lastly, to bury yourself in the promise. And I'll close with this. In verse 28, the passage closes in Genesis 27. Jacob lived in Egypt for 17 years, and the years of his life were 147. So he lives exactly the amount of time that Joseph lives in the beginning of the story, 17 years. He gets 17, year more, 17 more years on this life, maybe a little bit more and a little bit less difficult in his testimony. Verse 29, when the time drew near for Israel to die, he called for his sons, Joseph, and said to him, I have found favor in your eyes and put your hand under my thigh and promise me you will show me kindness and faithfulness. He says, don't you dare bury me in this place. All the glitz and the glamour and the gold and the Disney songs and the, and the drinks and the cocktails and the dancing and the fun and all that partying that goes on, it has nothing to do with blessing because there is no blessing without a father that feeds And so I'm not banking my blessing on a Pharaoh. I'm banking it on the Father. And I don't want my bones buried in this place. I want my bones buried in the promise. This is how he's remembered in Hebrews 11. Joseph, or rather Jacob, is remembered because he demands he's going to have his bones buried. And so they literally carry him around all throughout the desert with a bag of your great-great-grandfather's bones because his promise is to be made due to be buried in Israel, not in Egypt. Do not bury me in Egypt. But when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried And Joseph says, I will do as you say, swear to me, he says. And Joseph swore to him. And Israel worshiped as he leaned on his staff, the end of Genesis 47. The last thing that I thought that I saw in this passage about being a blessing and receiving a blessing and giving a blessing is to be buried in the promise. There will be days when the rains, you know, rains on the sinners and the saints and when Pharaoh looks like he has more of a blessing than you. And there's days when you go through Instagram and you think that your blessing has slipped through your fingers, but but know this, that the blessing is not something to be bartered or stolen or traded or given anyways. The blessing is something that is given. It can only be given because if it's not given, then is it a blessing in the first place? What is the blessing? The blessing is to be fed and not to be paid. The blessing is to pray, our Father, right in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth and is in heaven. And give me this day my daily bread and forgive us, my tra- give us our trespasses. This is the blessing. You are blessed. And what does it mean to be a blessing? It is not to have good vibes and good, good chills all the time. It has to include, it cannot eclipse brokenness and betrayal and heartache and famine and sword. It can't eclipse these things. The blessing is more than an it or a what or a where. The blessing is a, is a who. It is a father that feeds you and everything that you've ever purchased with your debit card has not slipped through his fingers without his, his giving it to you. And he even gives you blessings that you can make idols of, that you might get delivered over to slavery because slaves always make good persons to cry out for salvation. And maybe that's you today. If, if, if you have been befuddled and betrayed by the world and that first drink isn't quite as, or that second drink isn't quite as good as that first drink and that third movie isn't quite as good as that th- first movie and that 18th vacation is not quite as good as the first one, if you're still chasing after the vapor of what this world has to offer, then I will just quote to you that only, probably the one verse that we really know is John three sixteen that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The greatest gift we'll ever receive is Jesus Christ because he ushers us into the only blessing there is, is to live a life with the Father where we're fed and never paid, where we're sons and not slaves, where we're free people because the person that feeds you is the person that owns you. And so God feeds us freely that we could be free and it's for freedom that we've been set free indeed. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.